Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Circuit, episode 30. As I uh, sort of said last week, we were hitting a, a milestone in terms of numbers, if you will, uh, episode 30. Uh, I am Ben Beharin. Greetings, Internet. I'm Jay Goldberg. Welcome. So a couple of interesting things happened this week that I think are uh, are worthwhile. Uh, I hinted at this when I retweeted your article on Intel and the Tower Semi deal uh, that I'll put in the show notes. But essentially, I think what many people were concerned about, many people warned about, many people predicted, uh, China did not approve the deal of Tower Semi, and, uh, and, and Intel has ended up... Uh, foregoing its bid to acquire Temp Tower for just over $5 billion. Uh, there's been a range of opinions on this. I've seen everybody saying, you know, oh, this is not an unfortunate blow to Intel, but definitely something that is unfortunate in the terms of grand, Intel's grand ambitions. I know you think this is a good thing for Intel, which I'll let you explain, uh, explain why. Uh, but let's start there, right? Let's just look at sort of the nuances of the deal. What was your take on what they wanted uh, in terms of their grand strategy and maybe touch a little bit on, you know, kind of why you think it's, it's actually a good thing that this deal didn't happen. Right. So I, I've always, from, from the get-go, I was really scratching my head about this deal. Tower is, uh, is a, a very small player, tiny compared to Intel. Uh, they don't have great margins. It's a, they're in a very tough corner of the business. And so I've always scratched my head at it. Now, uh, Intel has has made the case that the, the strategic rationale behind it was that it would give them trailing edge capacity, and I think they sort of implied it, didn't quite say it, but this would also help accelerate the sales and go-to-market capabilities they need to make Intel Foundry services a viable entity. Intel has never had really had to sell to external customers. The operations team run the fabs are used to running running the roost at Intel, and now. Now they have to learn how to be, become salespeople and custom and have customers, and they didn't have that muscle. And so I guess the the idea was Tower would help them learn that. Um, in in addition to that, uh, Pat was actually he was on Ben Thompson's podcast a year plus ago, where he made the case that Intel made a strategic choice many many years ago to uh, to abandon trailing edge processes whenever they advance. And it helped them. It helped them keep their fabs super efficient and scale really quickly. TSMC, by contrast, when they advance the process node, they keep the old stuff and they just build a new fab for the new stuff. And as a result, now their trailing edge revenues are much greater than their leading edge because they have they have capacity going all the way back to probably sixty five nanometer leap. And so Pat's point was that Intel to be competitive in foundry needs trailing edge capacity and tower was their way to i don't know have some kickstart that now like i pointed out in my article i don't think either of those are great arguments and they sound good on paper i mean it's the right idea but i don't think tower was the way to accomplish that so you also mentioned so i think one of the points you made that i think is a good one is is first of all what would they have brought in terms of um, the overall uh, skilled assets, I guess, to help manage an external set of customers, because you're, you're totally right. And, and I think I've heard 
from customers out there that this is a bit of a concern, right? And you've mentioned this before. One of the things about TSMC is they're not just a really great foundry. They're also a services company. And that customer service, that handholding, that partnering and working together that comes along with this is, is definitely a key part of uh, what Intel needs to do to succeed. So there's a, a, a question there around, you know, would they actually get that skill set? Would that be a needed and valuable skill set that came? I think you, you even mentioned a point. I don't know if I'd heard this before. I think you had said you had that they, they may have even put uh, Tower CEO in charge of Intel Foundry services, which arguably might might have been a smart thing, having somebody in charge that, again, know, knows how to do this. So that was kind of one of my key questions slash takeaways from that whole thing, too, was, is that it was that a big enough deal that they needed it, right? The the people that they're getting, the services component of a foundry that they'd be acquiring. So I, I do think that that would have been valuable, obviously. And, and the other you mentioned it is capacity. I mean, I think the trailing edge stuff is uh, is interesting. People then speculated, well, will they go after global foundries? Probably not. Uh, that doesn't mean again, right? Just because this deal hasn't happened or isn't going through that they can't still partner with TSMC, or sorry, <laughs> with uh, with Tower Semiconductor, um, sort of in the similar way that they've been doing these partnership deals, right? They did one with ARM. They've done one recently with Synapsis uh, around IP, which I think is interesting. So there's still that potential, but that what they would get, right? Additional revenue, additional capacity, even at the trailing edge, and the knowledge base to service and run and external foundries are are kind of those things that 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 they're losing um, that I I initially thought would be helpful, but I know you made some other points around um, could it be a distraction? Do they need to solve these other things? I'll let you elaborate on that, but I thought that was a good good points too to what's the downside? What could have been the downside if they absorbed this company? So on on paper, like I said, it makes sense. Like just what you described, we're going to have this new organization that knows how to sell to customers. The problem is what what's really required at Intel isn't something you can just bolt on. They need a cultural change and acquiring your way to mm -hmm. cultural change. I don't think ever works. I, I can't think of an example of where that works, right? What you, like, I think the only way that would have worked is if you had acquired something sizable like global foundries and then just left it alone, like go run your business where you see fit. Mm. We're trying to bring in a bunch of outsiders it just contravenes human nature, right? You have these these strangers coming in and now they're in charge. Like, I mean, Intel's Intel's big problem is they have this very thick layer of middle management that is resistant to institutional change. And an external force like Tower, Tower execs coming in are, are going to have, have no hope of changing that. It has to, change has to come from within. And so the downside of Tower, of Intel buying Tower would be, you know, Pat and the executive team would have to spend countless hours on integration work, right? And that's 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 hard. It's boring. It's it's very nitty gritty personal stuff. Who gets access to to the executive bathroom? You know, everybody fighting over every last little stapler, right? It's 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 not fun stuff. And and somebody's gonna have to lose would have to lose their job. And like it's it's those things, like it sort of required so much mental capacity from the exec team at Intel at a time when they have much, much bigger problems. Right. To solve. And I think that right. distraction alone, it's hard, it's impossible to quantify, but I think it's very, very real. And, and that's why I think it's better that they didn't get this because 
they, they don't need that distraction right now. Good points. Good, good points. All right. So that was the sort of structures of the deal. Now let's talk about the regulatory thing. Cause I did think this was interesting. And, and, and again, I think a lot of people saw this coming. I mean, this was not, this was not something that, uh, that I think was like caught anybody by surprise. I think there was a lot of concerns. This was going to happen for, the point that I'm about to mention. Well, from, I, I think I think it, I, I think it caught Pat Chinese it caught Pat by surprise. Okay, okay, okay. Well, and, and so to that point, which I think leads into where we're going, you you could tell that Intel was trying to do everything they could to bypass the kind of regulations to distribute product into China to make sure that Intel parts could get to China to try to help ease some of this tension. But essentially what it boiled down to was a, a Chinese official came out and said, we, we acted in a way that we thought we would be treated if we tried to buy a, you know, a, 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 a external than China. So a either U.S. or other other global company that they just assumed that they would get blocked from doing so. And so they acted accordingly, which, again, is what I think a lot of people assumed that they would do. But per our last episode on geopolitics and kind of what's that looking like in terms of M&A, I think, again, this has all clearly played a role in this case of this deal not going through for, for Intel. Yeah, the M&A has become a, a tool in the geopolitical conflict tension between China and the US. Right. Going back to the Trump era, I think is what it started, right? When when Trump enacted his his tariffs and his retaliatory measures, China did not have a good set of options, right? And with like, we saw it again in, Oct- in uh, last October with the Biden administration restrictions on chip exports, China really didn't respond, like there's because they they don't have an easy way to do that, right? Yeah, yeah, they can, you know, they're gonna make noises about batteries and rare earth metals and gallium, whatever, germanium. Everyone knows those are pretty minor. One of the few things that they've been able to do is block U.S. M&A deals. And uh, it's unfortunate, right? I, actually, now that I think about it, it goes back even further. Right? It goes back to Qualcomm NXT. Right? That was that was probably the biggest, first and biggest example of that. And so China is, I don't, I, from an antitrust perspective, from straight legal perspective, most antitrust theories, I don't think there is any case that Intel buying tower is anti-competitive, but that's not the point, right? The point isn't sure. antitrust law, it's geopolitics. And this is just one way that China responds. Now, that, that being said, there's been hopes in recent weeks yeah. that tensions are easing a bit between China, right? Biden administration has done a lot to try and cool things down and try and re-engage. Uh, Secretary Raimondo is going soon to China, right? There are lots of high-level visits to China. And, and and then on top of that, last week, China approved Max Linear's acquisition of Silicon Motion, which was not what the Max Linear shareholders wanted to hear. But still, all of that sort of, there was starting to be this thesis that maybe, all right, tensions are ratcheting down a little bit. And then in the interim, we had Taiwan's vice president do a flyby in in, in the US, which wasn't well received in China. Uh, and then there's been another uh, round of in- restrictions around U.S. investors outbound to China. So maybe that just, they said, all right, 
you know, if this is going to be tit for tat, we're just going to go back to it. So I have no idea what anybody in China's government is thinking, right? Nobody does. It's very, very opaque. Um, but it certainly seems like there's, there's something, there's a, there, it's, it's very easy to assume that there's a geopolitical angle to this, to the Intel power deal. Yep. Yeah, no, hundred percent. I think that's absolutely clear, which as we talked about planning another episode specifically for, uh, is m is M&A deals done in semis because to tease that, right. You've got two things, which you just said, you've got geopolitical reasons why someone may not approve. And then you have anti-competitive or governmental reasons why this may happen. And so there's these two dynamics that will make a very challenging environment, which I'm sure we'll go into. Um, but certainly factors to think about uh, from that side. Now, you you proposed a fun conspiracy theory that I had not heard before that I actually think is really interesting. So I will let you dive into that. And then I have a slight conspiracy theory of my own. So I think we talked about this last episode where I've been talking to a lot more people from DC and policy circles about about China and semis. Um, and one of the topics I heard a couple people mention was they, they there is this theory making the rounds that China blocked China is actually be, becoming more open to allowing US M&A deals to go forward. But this one in particular, Tower Intel they f- they had another reason for stopping, which was China right now has an advantage versus the U.S. in trailing edge capacity. Where total wafers is about equivalent, but at some nodes like twenty eight, which is a really important node, China has more capacity than the U.S. does. And the thinking is that, like in any conflict, if you take out a leading edge, sort of Taiwan is blockaded or whatever, then if if you take out the leading edge, we're at level playing field from a competitive standpoint, a nation's competing example. If And so by that logic, China has some strategic interest in preventing the US from increasing its domestic trailing edge capacity, which is a pretty wild theory because it implies that China has this big grand plan and is, you know, looking at these very complicated things in a super long-term strategic time frame. I don't know if that's true, but it's certainly a fun. It's a, it's a good excuse to get out the tinfoil hat. Yep. So we talked about this, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but we talked about this very early on that one of the things that came out of the pandemic, pandemic era issues in supply chain was how dominant China was at the leading edge. You know, it's like people who couldn't get their parts for cars at the late, at the leading edge, at the, sorry, at the trailing edge, et cetera. It was all in China. And everybody I talked to in semis who manages the global supply chain kept saying the same thing. The problem is really not the leading edge. It's the trailing edge. We can't get chips for our event from the trailing edge. So that was where it became very evident to the point that you just made that China is dominant. Almost all of their dominant foundries is at the trailing edge. So that's, I liked your theory just on the basis of that knowledge of, of how much the supply chain at trailing edge that, uh, that China controls that to your point again, right? Yes. Global foundries is there. And that's one of the reasons why I think 
global technologies is strategic in eliminating that dominance because they're you know more at the trailing edge. But obviously, Tower would have been a part of that. So I I do think there was I don't know I don't know if there's merit to it, but I liked it. I liked I liked the conspiracy theory because it was spicy. So that's why I wanted you to share it. Right. I, I think I, there there is a there's a lot happening at, at trailing edge. There's a lot of change coming from China on this front. Right. And I think this this is actually a much more serious concern than the conspiracy stuff, which is China has what 200 fabs, I think. All of that trailing edge, some really, really laggy. Those fabs are empty, right? 30, 40, 50% utilization rate. They're not doing well. Pricing is collapsed in a lot of those. There is an immense wave of excess trailing edge capacity in China. And they're still adding fabs. And I think this is this is like textbook China economic development policy, which is you you subsidize everything. You have a thousand handset vendors, you have fifty EV makers, you have, you know, two thousand fabless designers, you have two hundred fabless uh, foundries, right? And you let the market the domestic market determine which of those are successful. And they have this brutal competition, and ultimately, there's one winner from the, those Hunger Games, and those companies they get designated as the national champion. Right? And and China's economic policies are very much geared towards exporting, capturing the world's demand, and it's a it's become a big problem for them. Like, right? There's all kinds of economic China's economy is a whole other topic, but like this is their model. They have excess capacity and they they solve that excess capacity problem by exporting. So the question now is, are they going to do that in trailing edge, especially analog semi foundries? And whether they intend to do that or not, I think that's gonna that's gonna happen. And so that's that's a bigger concern to me. And I, I think the the global US and European analog guys see this, which is why they're being a little conservative with their CapEx. But that, that's what worries me. Agreed. So the what I had heard, which is, again, sometimes I would say, yes, 100% speculation, or in this case, perhaps wishful thinking, because it came from the some friendlies on the sell side who want the scenario I'm about to say, the most that Intel does not. There was a theory that if this deal happened, it would present the foundations to split the companies. To your to your point about cultural challenges happening, 100% agree. If that talent, that culture came in, had the ability to go and execute and pull off IFS's strategy, their theory was that presents the right skill sets, perhaps management, et cetera, Obviously, money would still have to come from somewhere, whether that's Intel or whatnot, but regardless, but that that would be the the sort of foundation for them to now split IFS out into its own separate entity, which is what a lot of people on the street want. So that was, like I said, maybe wishful thinking, but that was another, what are we talking, game theory-ish stuff that that I heard. Yeah, I I think that's just the, the street echo chamber. I think the 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 board the intel board had this fight last year maybe the year before and uh they've they've i think everybody's yeah. now firmly in the camp of they're not going to split the company 
not never, but not, I mean, the, the whole, a whole yeah. bunch of other things have to get, would have to happen first. And I, I think it's, I don't, I don't think it's on, I don't think they're even considering that. I don't think it's on the table now. It would, yeah, yeah it would help. Okay. It would help this, I mean, solve I, this I particular do... problem. And I think it would help solve this very specific problem, but I don't, I, I don't think it's necessarily good for the broader company or the value of the combined entities. Yeah. I think we'll come back to this again at some point in the in the foreseeable future. But I it is a, it that this point in general is is a very spicy a very spicy topic in my opinion. And and I do think this conversation happens in the ranks of Intel regularly, but there's the powers that be, I think you're right, are, are aligned that there's there's nothing there. Um okay, so let's let's end cap this with the found the, the the foundry I guess opportunity as a whole outside of TSMC, um, you know we've talked about capacity challenges quite a bit. There's there's elements to this. You know, in, uh, Gelsinger and others have come out and said they want to be the number two foundry by revenue. Obviously not by by uh, shipments, but by revenue, which I think is a great a great goal. Um, and so so that's why part of my initial like this this will help with Intel is that there's going to be a revenue chunk here that they can integrate into the company. Cause I, th- I do think they would have had to have believed that they could grow towers business if it was inside of Intel. I think that had to be a thesis that was on the table. So as a, a incremental revenue share pie, um, but the opportunity here for foundries in terms of this, again, number like who's number two to TSMC and what are the, foundations that make that up, I actually think are a really interesting conversation. And I do think that leading edge point becomes interesting one because it doesn't feel like Samsung's, you know, wants to go there. Samsung's talking about three nanometer with gate all around. They're talking about being aggressive to two nanometer. So they're, they're clearly trying to push the leading edge, but Intel's also trying, trying to push the leading edge. And we know that TSMC, I think we've shared this stat before, but I can't remember, but estimates are TSMC has anywhere between 70 and 75% of the revenue uh, at the leading edge, which is um, which is a non-trivial amount of money. Um, if I recall, that's around $40 billion, meaning that there's, you know, whatever, 15-ish, 20, 30% left for other people at the leading edge. And so, so that's just let's just say the share that's up for grabs. But where I think part of this opportunity emerges, and I just, this is perhaps less a trailing edge point, but but maybe there's point, is if there was equal trading trailing edge capacity at these, or, or sorry, leading edge capacity, meaning that more foundries exist to produce more trailing edge than does today, does the size pie that I just threw out in terms of dollars grow? I would have to think it does, but by how much, I don't know. And that's where I think if it's not, you know, the size of this, whatever it is, let's say it's $50 billion is the revenue for trailing edge today, which we know is demand constrained or supply constrained. If there was equal access, would it grow? And then who's going to be the monetary beneficiaries of that potential leading edge market growth or TAM expansion in dollars, that I think is an interesting competition because it's really, it's, it's going to be Intel or Samsung and that's going to be a battle that gets fought out. So I, yeah, I, this, this leads to what's this concept? Jervon's paradox, which is the, as the price of something 
decreases, the overall market expands. And and the best example of this probably comes from mm-hmm. Intel, who, what, 20-something years ago, 30 years ago, dramatically lowered the cost of building servers, right? And everyone was all scared that the server market was going to go away. Intel's coming in, and they're, the prices for Intel servers are so much lower than everyone else's servers. And um, and what happened, we had, with the cloud came about. Data center, data center server usage exploded, um, and I, th- I think some. I mean, I, I think certainly today is if we had more leading edge vendors, suppliers, uh, there would be a similar increase in demand, right? I mean, just just look at AI, right? The the biggest problem with NVIDIA GPUs today is you can't get enough of them because there's just not enough capacity, right? Yeah. And I think if if magically yeah. tomorrow. IFS was real, the the market would just grow. Like we, we you and I both agree. We've talked about this at length, which is that AI is additive to the long term prospects of semis, and the big constraint now is capacity. And so, if we had another leading edge foundry, we'd have that would play out. Now that maybe that's painful for some of the players. It's but uh, I think I think it's it's it, it. I think the the problem is it's so there's so many technical things that go into this because it's not just euv and lithography it's also packaging and there's yeah. so many technical complexities yeah. built into this that it's there's i think there's plenty of room for all of these companies to 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 do well right and um you know we we don't talk a lot about samsung but they are you know they're the number two they're the, they're the the 25 20 25 percent they're the rest of the you know the trailing edge market is samsung and I know I've been hearing a lot about this yeah. lately. Is Samsung is is yeah. super super focused on getting more customers in the door. They they're they're yeah. right. Memory is not doing very well, so their fabs are underutilized. They desperately want to bring in more foundry customers. Um, and so, yeah. right, it's yep. th- this is the challenge all of the all of them face, right? And it's interesting that they're not actually on the you know, it's not yeah. clear that they're going to get how much business they're going to get from Nvidia for these GPUs, um, because they're they're their process and their customer service aren't quite where TSMC is. So we still got a few legs to go. Yes. I think, I think that, I think that's the, the biggest question because I think it's easy for most people to just sort of say Samsung's the clear number two in terms of revenue, that they're the, in the best position to get more leading edge and, and, and as a part of that increased pie, as well as, customers that aren't serviced or are our lower priority for um, TSMC. And there's many, right? I, I think if you're outside of the top four, it probably makes sense for you to consider, right? An alternative because you need to. Samsung seems to be that, 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 that easy beneficiary just because of their three and two nanometer timelines. But those timelines actually line up very similar to Intel's, which I think, you know, timing wise is going to be interesting, but competitively, I, th- I mean, you could tell me if, if you think I'm wrong because I just I don't know how exactly the 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 decision is made for where where you fab. But I would imagine that it's not entirely easy to just jump from foundry to foundry. So if Samsung is successful in getting, like you said, Nvidia, probably some Qualcomm parts, like why would they leave? Right? And unless unless Intel's is drastically better. 
why would they leave? And that's why I think this competition in Intel's timeline and delivery is so important because I, I, I mean, again, I, I'm not that it's the end of the world if they don't, but I just, I just feel to my, to me, there's a very small window. And if they, if they execute within that small window, they have a chance. If they miss it, I think it'll be really tricky. Yeah, I, I think it's a good point. And, you know, I, I've been involved in the foundry selection process, specifically Samsung versus TSMC. And of course, in that decision, the the key determinant is going to be process. But then after process, you know, assuming process is close enough or comparable between the two, the next really critical point isn't going to be pricing. It matters, but what matters far more is customer support, customer service. And, and that's why I harp on this subject so much with, with IFS and just in general. It's really hard to do, right? And all else being equal, price, process being equal, I will gladly work with TSMC any day over Samsung. It is just so much of an easier process working with them. And I, I don't mean to disparage them. I don't mean that on a personal level. It's just in terms of tools and service and what happens when things go wrong. How do they debug it? Their whole process for remediation. It's so much easier to work with TSMC on that front. And I think that's that's going to be Intel's real challenge is getting that right. I mean, just starting with tooling. Their tooling is way behind everyone else's. And as a result, I think that's the that's sort of the really tricky part of all this. It's hard to quantify, hard to understand, but there's just such a big gap today between TSMC and Samsung and Intel's even further behind. So that's that's the challenge. Hmm. But you you would agree that even in a scenario, right, let, that that the NVIDIAs, the Qualcomm's, right, those who need leading edge, if if they did choose Samsung in the next two years, it would be a little bit, I mean, not impossible, but less likely that they'd make a quick jump to Intel. And, unless again, right, would you say, I guess that's what I'm getting at. Let, let's assume right. that somebody goes with Samsung and then Intel's there. What would it take for that customer to move to IFS in your, in your opinion? So again, it's got to come back to process and Intel is, is going to have to prove that their process is at least comparable. And if they can really make it better, that's, you know, that, that will, that'll be a lot. Um, but the, the process of adopting a, a design for a fab is, is not something you do lightly. Right. It's not like back in the handset days where everybody would have two two vendors and they'd switch them off in the middle of the product run. Switching switching foundries is is a complicated process. Those are different processes. Like they, they use slightly different they have different layouts, they have different tools. And it, it's not a simple thing. You have to go back and redesign a fair portion of the chip. So it takes months. And yeah. Like I know that I know that in, like that's what NVIDIA is struggling with right now, is they need to get more GPU capacity, and it's just going to take time for them to get the design ported over to work on Samsung, and that's in an extreme circumstance. Right during the normal during the normal run of a chip, you, it's it's very rare to switch fabs or have two 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 foundries working on one product. You want to keep every product. You, you switch when there are big product changes. You don't switch in the life in the middle of the life of a product. And. And it's it's it takes months, and those are both established vendors and right established suppliers. Intel is going to have to you go through years of qualifying with these with with the with these guys. Now maybe they've started some of that, but it's still 
every process is going to be different. And so it's just going to take time. Right. So it, if Intel showed up today, said, hey, everything's ready to go. Let's go. We have 18A. It would still be a year before any anyone really put significant material volume onto that. Best yeah. case. Yeah. 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 Agree. I mean, it, it, it again, right? It, it's it's such an interesting competitive dynamic that I do hope I do hope we really get. I, I would love to see a, a great deal of foundry competition again be, between these three. I, you know, I, I really don't think to, to to all the points that you said. I don't think TSMC is going to give up that 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 majority share of leading edge anytime soon, if ever. But I, I do think this is going to make for a really interesting competition between uh, T- between Samsung and Intel for who's number two. And, and you're exactly right. Like that was what I was trying to getting at is how 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 hard is it to move? You're probably not going to see somebody go. Well, I'm going to use partial Samsung and partial Intel, like they used to try to dual source between TSMC and Samsung for for a couple SKUs. That, that's those days are probably gone. But you pick that foundry. Win that customer. I guess I say win that customer and retain it is really the path that both these companies are on. And we're, I mean, I would say we're we're like a year ish, like mid, like sometimes in early 2025, we should have an idea of what what this shapes up better than we do now. But I'm excited about the competition. It's it's just, I I think we appreciate how difficult it's going to be <laughs> for those two competing for leading edge outside of what. What TSMC is doing? Yeah, we we need we need we need alternatives. We need choices, right? We we can't we can't be a hundred percent reliant on TSMC. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, that's it for us today. Thanks for listening, everybody. Review our podcast. Share it liberally with colleagues in email or uh texts however however that happens but we we do appreciate everybody listening and for constantly giving us uh positive thoughts on on the podcast so thank you thank you for that thank you everybody <laughs>